Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. What price conscience? Abigail Disney's directorial debut, The Armor of Light, follows the journey of an evangelical minister trying to find the courage to preach about the growing toll of gun violence in America. The film tracks Reverend Rob Shank, anti-abortion activist and a fixture of the political far right who breaks with orthodoxy by questioning whether or not being pro-gun is consistent with being pro-life. In addition to Reverend Rob Shank, the film also tracks the tragic story of the mother of Jordan Davis, and that would be Lucy McBath and her journey. It's an amazing film, remarkable. There's a whole lot of things that come into play, issues in terms of our perception of pro-life, the gun gun violence in this country, uh, and it's all put together beautifully by the director, and that would be Abigail Disney. Abigail, welcome to Film School. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, uh, I, the, the, this is one of those um, uh, documentary. It's an emotional documentary. It's something I wasn't quite prepared for in terms of the emotional level that I think you were able to uh, elicit from not only the issue itself, but also from the people that you, you focus on. And I think because they're both... The, the, the main couple of people in the film are so sincere in their beliefs and, and their stories yeah. are so relatable. Um, you obviously had had access to uh, Reverend Rob Shank fairly early on and because we see him sort of a progression of, of his uh, of his journey, if you will. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that sort of relationship, sort of what how this all came to play as you were putting together the idea for doing a documentary. Well, you know, I went looking for people in the pro-life world. You know, I, I wanted to find a way to talk about this, first of all, that would be new, because <laughs> all we do is shout the same few things at each other over and over again. And I, I just wanted to break that up. And I had always wondered about people who were pro-life, how they squared that with the language around guns. Not so much guns themselves, but that kind of make-my-day, stand-your-ground kind of language. So... I did talk to several people before I talked to Roy, Rob, um, and, and Rob was the first one who was willing to be public with his concerns. So all of the people I talked to, all of them right-wing, conservative, evangelical, white pastors, um, had concerns and, and recognized that there was a problem, but, but knew it was sort of career suicide to right. talk to me right. on camera. Rob was the first one who said, you know, I just can't pretend that this doesn't bother me anymore. It's a problem. And so, yes, it was very early in his activism because, quite frankly, the conversation with me made him feel like he needed to act. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of, you know, I raised a series of questions and he just couldn't ignore them. And um, so that's why we were with him early. He and I developed a really strong friendship. And uh, so there was a lot of trust there between him and me. And, and that's partly why we were able to get such access. He really, really opened himself up. Well, let me echo that. Because he really does, <laughs> he really does open himself yeah. up, and uh, I, you know, uh, the amount of you know courage, and absolutely, I think your description is is accurate. That this is the third rail uh, in terms of uh, American electoral politics, no matter where you stand on the issue, yeah. but particularly at 
at what is the what seemed to be the most strongly held. It, it, I want to get into this uh, issue within the evangelical movement. Guns seem to be a, a close second to their religious beliefs, and it, yeah. it, it, it I and. It doesn't square with what Jesus said, as you, as they all, a lot of people point out in the in the film. It it, it this doesn't appear to be something that J- Jesus preached, you know, by yeah. the by the New Testament. So we want to talk about that, but about, we want to come back to that because I also want to talk okay. about Lucy McBath, who is amazing. I'm gonna I'm gonna choke yeah. up just thinking about some of the things that she said in the the story that she tells. Tell our audience a little bit about her while I compose myself. <laughs> She's really a remarkable person. She wasn't someone who was thinking about guns or anything like that. She was a flight attendant for Delta Airlines. Life, that was her whole career. Um, in fact, when I was flying down to Atlanta to, to shoot a scene with her, she served me my Diet Coke. <laughs> oh, is that right? Um, yeah. <laughs> she lost her son. You know, he was wrenched out of her life in the most awful way anyone can imagine, and um, it was devastating to her, just devastating. But she's a woman of very deep faith, and um, it it really wasn't long before she started to understand that she was called, in that very religious sense, called to, you know, transform this senselessness into something that, in fact, did make sense. And so she has, she's so articulate, and she's so... um, her heart is right up there on the surface. And the same with Rob. You know, they are people who are emotionally very available. And so I think one reason people are drawn to Lucy and her story are because of the way she presents it. It's just, she is just open. Yeah. And, um, and you can feel all the pain, but you can also feel all the sense of, of um, overcoming that pain and the strength that she's bringing to this. You know, it's almost um, impossible to sit with her and not feel moved. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with Abigail Disney. The film is The Armor of Light. And for those of you living in Southern California, as you hear the sound of my voice, uh, Abigail will be in town uh, to uh, do some questions and answers uh, at the Light Theater this weekend. Uh, Abigail, what are the, you, you mentioned the dates and the times earlier. What are they? Um, the tomorrow Halloween and the first. Okay, so um, Saturday, Saturday, Sunday night. Saturday and Sunday. I don't know the times yet. Oh, there. You, okay, well, check your local listings. I will post that to the the filmschoolradio.com dot com website right. as well. So, and uh, going back again to we, what I mentioned before, uh, we're talking about Lucy. And that is, why do you think that that there is such an affinity and and uh, to um, for guns in this country, and it's across the board. There are, you know, people of all political stripes and religious yes. faith that feel uh, it, it's a, almost a DNA-level sense that guns mm-hmm. are, are something that we are entitled to have and to be able to use how we see fit with very little constraint. What is it? Yeah, what, yeah. Where does this factor yeah. in? <laughs> you know... The, the, the entitlement to guns isn't a new thing. I think everybody <clears throat> in this country has felt that. And I think it's a little bit grandfathered in by the fact that, you know, we had to, we had a frontier, right? The, the British had, you know, settled the land long since. There were no indigenous people to wipe out and <laughs> no land to claim. 
And, the, of course, the, the nobles sort of managed the guns. Um, so it is a, a notable thing about the way our country was formed. Um, but, but we also tell ourselves a little bit of a story about cowboys and guns right. and the West and whatever, which isn't necessarily accurate. You know, we, what we get from John Wayne has nothing to do with what it was really like in an old Western town. In fact, the shootout at the OK Corral, um, you had to, when you came to Tombstone, there was a sign that said, leave your gun with the sheriff. Yeah. You weren't allowed to walk around town with a gun on your hip. And the whole reason the shootout happened was because the Clanton boys wouldn't give up their guns to the sheriff. It's a gun control story. <laughs> it's not a story <laughs> of how romantic it was to carry a gun around in the Old West. But So, so there's something that, about that mythology that people tend to swallow whole, and it sort of makes us look interesting and sexy and masculine and all the rest of that. But what, what, what we found when we went to these churches over and above all of that narrative of masculinity and so forth, was fear. I mean, just abject, unspeakable, insane amounts of fear. And, and that really surprised me. I didn't, I didn't know the level of fear that the evangelical community was feeling. And, you know, you hear things in, in the middle of nowhere. You're in, in this rural part of Illinois, and they'll say, well, I have to defend myself from ISIS. Yeah. And, um, and, of course, there's this language about Christian persecution, which is common right. among evangelicals, which is hard to fathom if you're not in those communities. But, you know, the thing is, I tried not to dismiss or mock or ridicule those fears, because as much as I think they're not reasonable, and that everybody could do with some better flow of information other than Fox News, it would be help this matter a lot. Right. Right. Um, I, I do know that these are real fears people have. They're, they're experiencing them as genuine fears. And in the feeling of powerlessness that is overwhelming them, a gun feels like something that gives them power. And, and I think the attraction to the gun, rather in, than other more, far more practical and less dangerous forms of self-defense, the gun is a totalizing implement. It ends life. Yeah. And I think that it really is almost more of a totem or an amulet than yeah. it is a genuine object for self-defense. I mean, I think it means much more than, than we, what we think it means to a group of people that feel pretty powerless. Right. Yeah, that, 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 boy, we could turn this into uh, an entire hour of discussion, and I, I don't want to, but I do want to inject a little bit into this, because my sense is, I don't understand the level of fear among Americans. We live in a country pr yeah. protected by two oceans, and bordered by two two countries who have absolutely no standing army to speak of, there's no <laughs> yeah. there's no reason in the world for us yeah. to fear uh, outside forces. Oh. And 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 yeah. I don't. And so where again? And I will say it's sort of a pet thing of mine that when you have a major media outlet that is twenty four seven dispensing fear, it galvanizes yeah. and it it. Uh, it validates fear in ways that I don't yes. think we have completely come to grips with in terms of the profound effect right. that that outlet has well, had and on And don't our... forget, the evangelicals are people who really believe that the devil is moving among us. Yeah. He is actively in there trying yeah. to mess yeah. with us. Yeah. So if you, if you have that fear of the devil and you watch Fox News all the time, every day would be a confirmation of your belief system. Every day every would contain some story or bunch of stories that you know, clearly the devil was in charge of. So, yeah, right. 
these are mutually reinforcing systems of thought, right. and that's part of the problem. I also believe that, you know, if you go to the black church, there's a black church in our... We only very briefly address race, because I really wanted to pitch this well, there you go. I was at say. people who are voting on this issue in a way that I think is, needs bettering. And so we... If we need, if we were going to talk to white evangelicals, we couldn't go deep, too deeply into race. Right. But nevertheless, you see how black evangelicals, just as conservative, they're, you know, um, Ben Carson conservative black church, but right. uh, they see this thing very differently. And it's so ironic, given that you know they are the people who send their sons out into the world with this possibility that they could get shot. It's what happened to Lucy. It happens a lot. So they actually have reason to be fearful, and yet they're the ones saying, the last thing I'm going to do is pick up a gun to defend myself. So right. there's something really important in that, which is that I think we aren't exposed enough to genuine danger, so we don't know how to handle fear. We haven't, like, flexed that muscle enough. It's not strong enough. <laughs> right. And I think that's part of what's happened. And after September 11th, I think the country had an opportunity to, you know, rise above it. We had an opportunity for our leaders to say, you had nothing to fear but fear itself. But that's not what they said. What they said was, let's nuke them back into the Stone Age. And so their response to the fear that was generated on September 11th, I think has a lot to do with where we are right now. Because everything we've done since that day is to try to make sure that nothing ever happens again. Which is in its way, admirable, but not possible. Right. <laughs> and in trying to control every outcome or ensure total safety, you know, a- anyone can, who's tried that will tell you that's the surest way to get yourself into trouble. It's the surest way to get yourself killed. So more American adults have been killed by toddlers than by terrorists. And it's really just because we are so frightened that we're shooting our- ourselves and each other. So yeah. fear really is the biggest piece of this, and it's a modern incarnation, and politicians have exploited it, um, unscrupulous pastors have exploited it, and of course Fox News exploiting it. And the NRA. And the NRA, and the NRA which is really... More than it, anybody else. It's really... Uh, the NRA, let's say it, I'm going to say it out loud, the NRA is a trade organization for gun manufacturers. Mm-hmm. It's pure and simple. Every yeah. marketing well, you know opportunity what? to Can do that. Can I tell that. you something about that? Yeah. Here's, what, here's what I know. Up until the mid-1990s, they were not a trade organization. They were a consumer-run organization. And all of their promotional materials, if you look at them pre-1996 or so, say, we don't take any money from manufacturers, and that's why you can trust us. So what happened in the mid-90s was they were running a big deficit. Wayne LaPierre had just come into power, and he didn't know what he was doing. They were hemorrhaging membership, and they'd lost a succession of gun battles in uh, the Clinton administration. Right. The Brady They bill. knew the writing was on the wall for right. them, and they turned around and started taking trade money. They started taking money from manufacturers. They brought in a very powerful public relations arm, and they put Charlton Heston at the head of the organization. And everything turned on a dime in that moment. And this is important. You know, Smith & Wesson broke with manufacturers and cooperated with the Clinton administration by saying they would put trigger locks on guns. And a boycott formed so quickly that they were almost brought to their knees. Within months, brought to their knees, this legendary gun company. So the deal is the manufacturers do the NRA's bidding, yeah. not the other way around. Right. And that should scare you more because these are ideologues. 
and they have a bigger agenda than just guns. Manufacturers are pleased as punch to make money, but what Wayne LaPierre is about and the rest of the people on that board are a vision for society that should scare the life out of you. We're speaking with Abigail Disney. The film is The Armor of Light. And on, well, just to one last comment on, on that, and that is um, that there was a time, and you described it before 1996, but there was a time when the NRA's business was to, to teach and dis- disseminate safety uh, training, uh, say how to handle guns. They were set up in such yeah. a way and was a reasonable... Um, organization a reasonable idea here was to say look you're going to have a gun great we'll treat we'll train you how to properly use it store it make sure that it doesn't fall into the hands of the wrong people but as you said it's accelerated and all the political ramifications so i want to get back to the armor of light on that note because uh the political courage involved and the um the religious courage involved on the part of reverend Rob Shank is to be admired tremendously, yes. and he comes off. I'm not a particularly religious man. Uh, he comes off as sincere, relatable. Uh, I can understand the the uh, machinations of his decisions and what goes into them. His decision to open this to, uh, to his organization to discuss and the reaction that he got in, you know, all of it, it makes me admire him uh, tremendously. And I, I my hats off to him. Uh, for taking this on and in a way that is admirable, at at very least. Yeah, um, I agree. Yeah, I, and I'm just curious uh, the reaction since your since uh, armor the armor of light has come out. Uh, what's been the reaction on the part of? Well, generally, tell me if any specific examples of where you were you know, surprised or 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 not surprised. I guess. Yeah, Ro- Rob has certainly felt the backlash. So he has a small not-for-profit, which is hemorrhaging donors now, and, um, you know, people are starting to say hateful things on his Twitter feed, and that, so that's, that's starting. Um, Sarah Palin Facebooked about it and called him a moron, and, um, you know, so things like that are starting to happen. Um, I, you know, he knew that was coming, and he was mentally prepared for it, but still emotionally to watch you know, friends that you've had for a long time yeah. start to turn on you. It's really hard. He's having a very hard time with it. But, you know, as, as, as you say, he's a brave man. And, you know, he just said to me this morning, I, I've never felt more sincere and authentic in anything I've ever done in my life. So, you know, he still considers it, you know, that a gift that he's been able to do this. Um, we have been amazed at uh, some of the conservatives who are supporting us. I mean, we have a guy working for us from Rick Santorum's campaign. We have a woman who worked in Bush's camp, um, camp presidency for eight years as one of his evangelical outreach. There are people who are deep in the evangelical world who are very supportive of what we're doing. And we have groups of pastors. We've been meeting for the last two months with evangelical pastors kind of asking for their support. And we're building quite a, quite a coterie of Evangelicals who are now beginning to want to speak out on this question. So um, we just had our two most friendly, sympathetic interviews yesterday at Fox Business and Fox Radio. Okay. One of them from an NRA pistol instructor who is a very supportive of the film. So I'm, I'm pleased as punch because I really do feel that, you know, you can only hold the water uphill so long, you know, but people have been concerned this isn't right 
Everybody knows it. And at some point, that's got to give. Well, as often happens, it's someone on the inside who has to pop that balloon, has to yes. puncture that, 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 uh, exactly. that sensibility that, uh, that has permeated right. uh, this issue for so long. Mass killings in this country, what is it, every couple of yes. days, every... We're, every couple of days. Every yeah. couple of days yeah. more than I, was... I mean, it's... It's crazy. It's, it's yeah, madness. All, all of the indicators are that, that these mass killings are increasing in frequency, and the number of dead, the average number of victims is going up. Okay. And that's not even really counting the people who are shot and wounded who, who don't die. Right. If you actually include that, then we're really at crazy levels. And one reason that the murder rate doesn't appear to have risen as much as you would expect is because we have a lot of trauma surgeons coming home from battlefields who are better able to keep people alive from gunshots. So they're just not dying with the same frequency. Otherwise, the murder rate would be higher. Yeah, and and all the you know all the accidental deaths. You're more likely if you have a gun in the house. You're more likely to die than somebody intruding into your house by <laughs> by a lot. Yeah. All the the, the numbers are just like forty three over- times. Yeah. The the numbers are just overwhelming in terms of it. But it is yeah. this sort of you know it's I think really a lot of it having a gun in your hand is is sort of imp- sort of a godlike ability to to decide who lives and who dies. There's some component of this sort of right. s- swift justice, swift and sure justice that appeals to people. Yeah. And I and and right. we got to get over that. That is just that is evil. So uh wow. And that's that's what Rob says at one point when he says I think for too long I've been addicted to simple answers. Yeah. And they're like heroin. Right? Yeah. The instant you have a simple answer, you feel this relief. Yeah. And uh and that's and that's what a gun is, you know, because between, you know, say, someone assaulting you and the firing of the gun, there are a hundred other decisions for you to make. Running away, calling the police, giving the person your wallet. There are a hundred nonviolent, nonlethal decisions you can make before firing the weapon. And what's the likelihood that you're going to exhaust all those opportunities if you have this one thing concealed in your pocket right. that will solve the problem solve it right simultaneously there. by taking that person's life? Well... Abigail Disney, I want to thank you so much for the Armor of Light. You're going to be at the Arc Light uh, t- uh, tomorrow night. That yes. will be Saturday and Sunday, uh, Halloween night and November 1st for a Q&A. I'm going to guess it's around the 7, 7.30 showing. I don't have it right in front of me. Check your listing on that at the Arc Light. Uh, you all, the film also opens at the Lemley Playhouse 7 as well as out in Ontario, I believe, is, as well, it's opening. Um, and yeah. and in addition to everything else, uh, just thank you so much for uh, all the work that you've been doing, uh, including a slew of films, the Pray the Devil Back to Hell. You've been producer of a number, 1971, uh, Citizen Coke, uh, uh, yeah, lots, lots of films. And I'm glad <laughs> to see you're, in the, you're sitting in the director's uh, chair for this one. Uh, and, and thank any time. Come back. I, I I look forward to a thank conversation you. with you about anything else that's on your mind. Thank and you so th- much. Thank you, Abigail. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome, Abigail Disney, executive producer and director of The Armor of Light. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.